0: Inside to outside. Repairs
1: to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner.
0: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss the science of talent. We look at how great talent is built into the very physical structure of the brain itself. Explore the incredible importance of striving at the edge of your ability and staying there as long as possible. The vital importance of mistakes in the learning process. How a group of kindergartners beat a bunch of CEOs at a simple team building exercise. A powerful tool Navy SEALs use to make better decisions that you can apply to your life right now. And much more with our guest, Daniel Coyle. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also gonna get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, We discussed the foundations of evidence-based thinking, the important balance between habits and decisions and how each of them shapes who you ultimately become, and dug into the idea that your decisions set the trajectory of your life, but your habits determine how far you walk on that journey. From there, we explored how to build high-impact habits, what you need to do to determine the best habits to focus on first, how you can harness the power of the aggregation of marginal gains, and much more with our guest James Clear. If you want to crush procrastination and overwhelm, be sure to check out our previous episode with James. Now for our interview with Daniel. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Daniel Coyle. Daniel is the New York Times bestselling author of The Talent Code, The Culture Code, and several other books. He's a contributing editor for Outside Magazine and works as a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians. His most recent work focuses on how we can build cultures that last and be highly productive. And his work has been featured on the TED stage and much more. Daniel, welcome to the Science of Success.
2: Hey, Matt, it's good to be here with you.
0: Well, we're very excited to have you on the show. And I'd love to get started with, I mean, I think both of your, you know, both of kind of two of your biggest books, The Talent Code and The Culture Code, have so much wisdom. I'd love to start with maybe kind of this idea of individual talent and then, you know, move to sort of looking at how we can sort of collaborate and work in groups and build culture.
1: Yeah,
2: well, that, that's funny. That's kind of how I started on this little journey, you know, got interested in these talent hotbeds and it sent me on this, on this long trip I've been on for the last 10 years. So it's, uh, I'd love to start there.
0: So I think that's the, even that sort of statement is a great place to kind of dig in. When you say talent hotbed, what is that? And how did that kind of spark this, this journey?
2: You know, we've all heard of these places and they're real. Like there are little places that produce like statistically impossible numbers of talented performers. There's a place in Russia with chess players. There's a music camp in the Adirondacks that produces unbelievable players. There's a tennis club in, outside of Moscow called Spartak that produces more top 20 women than all of America did for a period of about 10 years. So we're all familiar with this idea, you know, the little town in the Dominican that all the shortstops come from. We're all familiar with that and how unlikely it is. And and that mystery is what sent me on this journey with the talent code where I went to find out what the hell's going on there. Like, what's that all about? Is it something in the water? Is it something more? And the journey took me on this this deep dive into into basically how the brain learns. And what great practice looks like, feels like, smells like, what great motivation looks like, feels like, smells like, and, and what great coaching looks like. And so that's, I, I found there was sort of a pattern that they all shared, a pattern that is really clear when you look at the human brain. You know, there's a certain kind of practice that's happening there that improves your learning velocity. You know, the subtitle of the book is that greatness isn't born, it's, it's built. And that's what I found out to be pretty much true.
0: There's so many kind of ways I want to go from that and, and unpack what you said. Let's start with kind of this this simple idea of how the brain learns. If, in that kind of journey to uncover these talent hotbeds, how did you start to kind of peel back the layers and really understand how our brain really functions?
2: It started with going there, going to these places and seeing them involved in this certain kind of practice that puts you on the edge of your ability. There's a story that I tell early in the book, and it's of a clarinet player. Her name is Clarissa and she's part of this larger study that, that tracked improvement for, for over years. And so they were able to identify these extraordinary moments where her learning velocity increased, where she learned, in this case, it was a month's worth of practice in five minutes. And so we, I was able to look at the videotape. What does that five minutes look like? And it looks... You know, we typically think of talent as something that just sort of blooms and happens uh, kind of with effortlessness. And what I found was exactly the opposite. I mean, she's she's making mistakes. She's playing, and then and it's almost like she wants to drop her clarinet. She feels that mistake so intensely. She's so aware of what right is and what wrong is. And she repeatedly goes to that edge of her ability, fails, notices the failure, learns from it, and then moves again. And that moment, which is really called deep practice, is where her brain is being built, where she is building that brain. And then you go a little deeper. Uh, I went to this fantastic doctor, Dr. Douglas Fields, who studies studies the brain and learning and a bunch of other stuff at the National Institute of Health uh, in Maryland. And he showed me this picture of of something, and it sort of looked like electrical tape wrapping a wire. It was this sort of spiral around a wire. And he started telling me about myelin, and myelin is a brain substance that was thought to be inert for many years. It's basically the insulation around your wires of your brain, like your brain is a bunch of wires and myelin is the insulation that, that lets the signal go from one spot to another. If you didn't have it, the signal would leak out and it's the same reason we got myelin on the on the cords that we're using to talk right now, it insulates the wires. And so he started telling me that modern science actually got it deeply wrong when it came to myelin. It wasn't inert, it grows, and it grows in response to practice. They've actually done these brain studies where they can look at brains of, say, a piano player after 50 hours of practice, after 100 hours of practice, after 200 hours of practice. And the myelin on those circuits in the brain grows in proportion to the hours that you spend. In other words, every effortful rep earns you some new connections. Every effortful rep earns you another wrap of this insulation. And when you get more insulation, I don't know if your audience is into electrical engineering, but the thicker insulation is the faster the signal speed becomes. So the thicker that myelin gets, the more you earn another wrap and earn another wrap and earn another wrap, you get better signal speed, which means you get better skill. You know, this, this idea of, you know, we always talk about muscle memory. You know, it's got great muscle memory. That's actually a deep misnomer. Muscles don't have any memory. Like they don't. All the memory comes in your wires of your brain. And the faster and more accurately you build that machine between your ears through deep practice, through going to the edge of your ability and repeating and learning, the better brain you build.
0: I love that idea of essentially sort of cramming a month's worth of learning into five minutes by kind of really being at the edge of your ability. That's, that's really interesting.
2: And it's beautiful to watch, actually, because it, it's, it's really ugly. <laughs> it's, it's not it is not a pretty place to hang out. And it's very effortful to hang out there, which is why you can't do it in, you know, for five hours a day. You know, you can't do it for 10 hours a day. Most of the places I visited had really intensive practice for between like one and three hours a day. And, and that's where they could really get the most done. And so this idea that we have, and I think it's been fueled a little bit by the 10,000 hour number and this idea of oh, great world class experts only have to take 10,000 hours. So that gives you kind of a sense like, Oh, I just need to put more hours in, right? And you were measuring hours. We're, it's actually kind of a bad nudge because uh, don't measure hours, measure quality reps, measure. We, we often measure our practices by, Oh, I spent an hour doing X. Don't measure it that way. Actually, measure it by how many intensive reps you can get. Like, for example, if you want to memorize part of a book, don't like highlight it and go over it. That, that's been shown that it doesn't work very well. The best way to do it is to cl- read the book once, close it, and then try to regenerate what's in the book. Actively put yourself in that Clarissa spot of like, oh, I don't quite have it. I'm failing, but I'm but I've almost got it. And try to generate that as much as you can. Make your rep active and reaching. The key word is really reach, like to get to the edge of ability and reach just past it. The more you can do that, the more effective your practice will be.
0: I think it's another really kind of critical idea that this notion that talent is, I mean, not something necessarily that you're born with, but it's, re- it's literally something that's sort of built into the physical structure of your brain through this, through this sort of reach through this kind of deep or deliberate practice.
2: It is. It's, it's, it's a liberating idea and, and it comes with a few caveats. If we're talking about talent as like pure speed or pure ability to leap, no, genes matter. You know what I mean? And genes, genes are not, you know, not important, right? But we've always thought of this as sort of nature versus nurture, right? It's, is it nature or is it nurture? And, and what the science is increasingly telling us is it's nature times nurture. It's a multiplier. So if you've got, you know, some natural proclivities, and what you can do with quality practice is really deeply accelerate those through the act of reaching.
0: So tell me a little bit more about this idea of, of kind of reaching or being at the edge of our sort of growth zone.
2: Well, it's interesting. All reaching is not created equal, Matt. Like if you know, remember the first time I went downhill skiing. I was definitely reaching. Like, I was 15 years old, never really been on downhill skis before. I just flopped my way down the mountain. It was not pretty. I was definitely reaching, but I was way, way away from my target. And I didn't learn anything except how to sort of fall really well. But, like, to be what you should be aiming for is aiming between like, and and it varies according to the task, but sort of aiming between making it between like 70 and 80% of the time. Like you should be failing 20 to 30% of the time. That's sort of a a reach. If it's too easy and you're making it 90% of the time, you're probably not learning enough. If it's too hard and you're making it 10% of the time, you need to move the target closer so that you can more accurately get it. And when you think about that reach, it really makes you reinterpret another word, which is the word mistake. When we fail, it feels really bad and, and it feels like we should stop and it feels like it's, it's, it's a problem and it, and it makes you turn away from it. And what happens in these talent hotbeds and in other high learner environments is people really lean into that because they realize that mistake is not a verdict. That mistake that you made is information. It's information that you can use for your next try. It's like you're building a map, right? And I'm trying to find wichita on the map and and if i if I, I reach toward wichita but i and i have no idea where i am it's hard to figure find where where the right path is but if i know that i went to kansas city then i can go toward wichita and i can use that to triangulate so those mistakes are gifts because they give you the edges and the feel that you need and the information literally that you need to make a, a, a more accurate reach next time
0: And in many ways, it almost seems like mistakes are sort of where the learning is really taking place, essentially.
2: Oh, my God. Mistakes are the gift. You know, that is is the moment. And so there's a really key moment. They've actually shown this on brain scans. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Carol Dweck's work with Growth Mindset. And they can actually identify the moment. It happens like 0.2 seconds after you make a mistake. And in some people's brains, they look intently at the mistake. Like, what the hell happened there? I want to know, right? And in other people's brains, they kind of shut down and look elsewhere. And so it's really a provocative question for all of us, like, which one are we, right? When we make a mistake, there's that tendency to flinch and close your eyes. If you do that, you're losing a huge opportunity. If you make a mistake and you really get more interested, that, that's where the growth is going to happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're huge, huge fans of, of Carol Dweck. She's previous guest on the show and her book Mindset probably was one of the most transformational books that I ever read personally. And I couldn't agree more about kind of the theme that if you delude yourself into thinking that you haven't made a mistake or you don't learn from your mistakes, there is so much kind of self-sabotage happens in in really all realms of sort of learning and personal development.
2: Totally. And we always think of that as being kind of a moral point. Like, oh you should learn from your mistakes because it's the right thing to do It's actually also a neural point right it's you're actually having that opportunity to build an, an unbelievable opportunity to build your brain that you're walking past so it's the right thing to do kind of from a, from being a being a better person sort of point of view but also from sort of being a better learner
0: I really like the way you phrase that and, and I mean from the perspective of the myelin structures inside of your brain if you're not learning from your mistakes you're not allowing your brain to get wired in a way that's going to make you more talented and ultimately help you become more successful.
2: And you're building habits, you're myelinating and building better wires for you to look away. So all these things grow on each other. And, and that's the other thing that kind of got me interested, you know, as I went through the individual stuff, if we can kind of, you know, in some ways make the turn toward culture here, because the power of a culture to create an environment where everybody is learning is incredibly cool. The idea that certain leaders can send signals to say, all right, we're going to make that safe we're going to make it safe to really make mistakes and learn can have a huge effects on the overall learning of a group. It's just a, it's just, you know, I saw that. So that's what kind of got me interested in groups in the first place. Cause you'd walk into these hotbeds and some of them just like, they felt different, right? They felt really cool. They felt really connected. You know, we talk about that term chemistry, like that group has really great chemistry. And you know, we feel that when you walk into a great school, you walk around, be around a great family, be around a great sports team, be around a great business. You walk and you feel that chemistry. You know, we've always thought of that as magic, right? But it ain't. Like it's not magic. It's human signaling. It's, you know, they're 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 kind of aligned their behaviors with with really powerful wires in our brain that that help us generate closeness and connection and cohesion.
0: Absolutely wanted to get into all of that. There's one other thing I want to kind of come back to before we go too deep down the culture rabbit hole, which is something that I constantly kind of think about and struggle with. Ooh. And as somebody who's who's really done a lot of homework on this, I'm curious what your perspective would be. You know, I can easily see how sort of this deep practice and, and knowing when you're kind of at the edge of your growth zone and all these things apply to things like chess or tennis or, you know, sort of discrete skills where it's easy to get feedback and sort of measure the results. How do you think about applying this to things like business or sort of larger, you know, fields of interaction where there's really kind of unclear, long-term sort of murky feedback or no feedback, or, you know, there's a huge amount of noise between sort of action and feedback.
2: Right. That's a really cool question. And it's one that actually we faced a little bit in terms of, you know, some of the work I've done with the Cleveland Indians, not with the baseball players so much, but with the people on the the baseball operations side, because we're trying to do what you're talking about, which is the big challenge there that I think you're speaking to is the fact that the world, especially the business world, is kind of this really mushy place, right? Like, did that meeting go well? Did that meeting not go well? Like, how am I doing? Like if I'm shooting free throws, I I can add that up. Like I can I know my free throw percentage. But what's my percentage on like having good conversations with people? Right. And the I think the the way to think about that space is exactly in line with sports. You have to define your scoreboard, right? You have to create moments of reflection where you assess yourself on how you're doing against a clear standard. And a lot of successful people I've seen build that standard for themselves. I've seen I've seen it like three or four times recently where people will kind of build their own dashboard, right? It's a piece of paper that sits on their desk and it's got the key things they want to get done for the day. It might have to do with, you know, learning this. It might be, be relational. It might be connecting with, uh, with a spouse. It might be something completely different. But the idea of constantly holding yourself accountable to some really specific metrics on, on what you want to do and really specific standards and making a bar really clear. This is where language ends up being massively important in in defining what you want. Any improvement comes down to three things. You got to figure out where you're at. You got to figure out where you want to go. And you got to figure out how you're going to get there. And those first two pieces are really a lot of reflection. Like, There's a, in modern life, like all learning is made of a loop on the top. You have experience and the bottom is reflection. And in our world, the world is, is filled with experiences, but carving out time to reflect, to really figure out, okay, what, where am I with my skills? Let's say my, my sales skills or my skills at giving a pitch. Where am I with those skills? How can I assess that? And where do I want to be? Give me a really clear windshield of specifically the skills that I need to build. And then I need to build a process for getting there. And I think a lot of times we give a lot of credence to experience and a lot of lines of work. How do I become a better lawyer? Well, you just have to have a lot of experiences. How do I become a better baseball scout? Well, you just have to have a lot of experiences. That's what we're told. That's not actually true. You know, you can build your own system, but it really hinges on Figure out where you're at with reflection. Figure out where you want to go by staring at greatness. Who is great in your environment? How can you quantify that greatness and describe it? And then build yourself a plan of daily habits for getting there.
0: I think that's a great answer. And especially that that kind of piece of both thinking about reflection and and you know using those sort of contemplative routines or contemplative time, whether it's journaling or thinking or whatever, to really step back and and figure out how do I kind of tie my experiences to, you know, what I want to take away from them and how I'm going to improve on them. And then I think marrying that with this this notion of sort of really measurable kind of process driven goals is a really comprehensive way to think about that. So thank you for such an insightful answer. You bet. So let's let's kind of get back to this idea of culture now. I want to come back to something you kind of touched on a, a moment ago which is this notion that building great cultures isn't isn't sort of magic it's not kind of this this voodoo thing it's something that there's very sort of practical specific actions that you can take and when you and, and you've actually been out in the field and studied people like pro basketball teams and navy seals and all these different realms of endeavor and found that it's not this this sort of impenetrable mystical force it's something that's really practical and
2: specific Mystical force. I love that because that's exactly how we perceive it, right? Like, oh man, Apple's just got that thing, or or Amazon, or whoever. You know? That idea is very sexy and pervasive. That they've got it, and it's kind of something they're born with. It's sort of the you know the group version of genes, right? They've just got that magical thing that lets them be awesome, and and we don't. But when you look closer at that, well, it's quite ironic actually that we view it with such you know through such a mystical lens because. By far, like when you when you look at the studies, there was a cool Harvard study that, that took 200 paired organizations. They were identical in every respect, except for one. One had a strong culture, one had a weak culture. And then they tracked them for 11 years. And the difference in net revenue uh, between strong culture and weak culture was 756%. This culture was worth that much, 756% in net revenue, in, in performance, basically. So culture, it's this ironic Thing because culture is by far the most important thing you do in a group. It's the most important asset that you have. It's your Achilles' heel, potentially. And yet we regard it like it's some mystical smoke, which is kind of crazy. Because when you look underneath the smoke, what you see is this very old, very simple set of signals. Signal, they're called signaling behaviors. There's certain behaviors that sort of cause these ancient wires in our brains to light up. And they have to do with some very fundamental evolutionary things like safety. Like, am I safe? Am I not? And the other one has to do with sharing risk. Like, are we sharing risk here or are we not sharing risk together? And the third has to do with where are we going? And a good visual for your listeners, if, if you're trying to think about what a great group looks like, picture like a flock of birds moving through a forest, or maybe better, like a a school of fish moving through a coral reef, like thousands of fish all together moving through this really complicated environment in real time. That's what great culture is. Like when you look, watch Pixar make a movie, when you watch the Navy SEALs operate, like it's connection, it's sharing of information. They're not hiding information. They're showing where each other is. And it's clear direction of where the goal is, where are we going? that image of those of that that school of of silvery fish moving through the coral reef is exactly what they're achieving by sending these signaling behaviors of safety like it's safe to be connected here of sharing vulnerability sharing risk and of purpose and so this kind of fundamental language is what the what the book is about
0: i think it's great that you kind of bring it back to you know the this sort of how evolution has sort of shaped our psychology you know it's funny the very first episode we ever did of the science of success many years ago was called the biological limits of the human mind. And it was all about how, Mm. you know, evolution has baked in certain sort of biases and behaviors into our brains. And in most cases, they work really well. But occasionally, especially in sort of modern society, which is not necessarily what our brains were designed for, they can often kind of short circuit.
2: Super, exactly, exactly. One of the biggest ways it does that is around this notion of, of vulnerability. You know, typically, we're taught like if you and I are going to trust each other, that we've got to build up trust in order to be vulnerable, right? Like we're going to work together. We've got to build trust and then we can be vulnerable together. And But in fact, when you look at the science and you look at the experiments, we've got it exactly backwards. Being vulnerable together builds trust. Being open together. There's some really cool experiments I talk about in the book where they pair people and ask them questions. One set of questions. One group gets one set of questions designed to create vulnerability. It asks them like, when was the last time you sang in the shower? People have to ask each other. Or tell me one thing that you've always wanted to do and why haven't you done it? Like like another one is just, the other group just gets kind of factual questions like, who's your favorite movie star? And at the end, they have them all do a cooperative act. And the team that got vulnerable together performs better. Like they're better at cooperating. And which really shows how backwards we've got it. Vulnerability, sharing weakness together is what builds trust. And great groups operationalize this they purposely create with the with the intent of like an athlete training they purposely create moments where people can get real and where people can be vulnerable and tell each other the truth about what's really happening i mean when the seals do a mission whether it's a training mission or whether it's Bin Laden, and and for the book, actually, I ended up talking to the guy who trained the people who got Bin Laden. They do something called an AAR, which is called an after-action review, and they they get off the helicopter and they circle up and they start having a hard conversation about what went wrong, and about what went right, and about what they're going to do different next time. And it's like a five; it can be a five or ten-minute thing. It's incredibly powerful. It's a hard conversation. It's really hard to like admit. Yep, I totally screwed that up. But it's the thing that lets them build a shared mental model of what they're doing. It's the thing that lets them cooperate, just like the people in the experiment, cooperate better. Actually, one of, the, one of the, the commander that I spent time with, his name is Dave Cooper, he put it this way. He said, the most important four words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. Which was like kind of shocking to me in some ways. Like I, th- I thought Navy SEALs were supposed to be confident. And they are. But the real confidence they have is that they can share weakness together. You know, and groups that share their weaknesses are strong and groups that hide their weaknesses are weak.
0: You know, it's funny that that example about the Navy SEALs, I thought was one of my favorite kind of anecdotes from culture code and especially that sort of phrase, I screwed up, right? It's, it's so often in our culture that we try to hide or minimize and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Minimizing our mistakes when in reality, the best thing you can usually do is to take responsibility and own up to it.
2: Totally. for and, and not, you know, in, in, for your sake, for the sake of your brain, but also for the sake of the culture, because it makes it safe for others to do the same thing. And there's such, you know, we're wired for status. You know, we've got all of this impulses to preserve our status. And so it's really what I saw in the places that I visited where that leader, were leaders who constantly radiated what you might call a backbone of humility. You know, we think of humility as being just sort of a quality on its own, like, oh, that's so humble. But actually, it takes great strength. And that's why it's really a backbone of humility, that it, it takes strength to be able to say, hey, I need you. I really need your help on this or I, I do not know how to do that. And there's really cool ways to do that. I mean, it's, it's especially for women, it, it ends up being so, sometimes hard to be vulnerable at work because it can be perceived as weakness and it can perceived, be perceived with bias. But the leaders I saw always framed their vulnerability around learning. Like there was a cool moment, an engineer at Google told me about, uh, he had used to work at Pixar. And one day they were hanging out as a bunch of young engineers and the head of Pixar came by. It's kind of Ed Catmull, who's a co-founder with Steve Jobs of Pixar. And he came by and he just sort of watched them. And they got kind of nervous, like these are 20-something engineers working on a problem. And then Ed Catmull speaks up and he says, Hey, when you guys are done, could you come up to my office and teach me how to do that? Like what it was just a really cool moment. The guy got goosebumps telling me about it, and it was and it happened 15 years before. But that way of expressing vulnerability around learning, like We're not just going to say that we're, you know, oh, I'm not good at that. I'm done with that. It's I want to learn that. And for a leader to send that signal is incredibly powerful.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to kind of dig into dig into the vulnerability a little bit more. Tell me about some of the, I think that that's a great way of kind of framing around learning, but I'm curious, what are some of the other kind of, as you call them, ideas for action around kind of cultivating vulnerability in sort of a group setting and building a culture around making vulnerability acceptable?
1: Yeah,
2: you know, really making sure that the leader is vulnerable sort of first and often ends up being, being really important. Another related thing is delivering negative stuff in person. You know, there's a lot of times when you got to give someone a no that you're sort of tempted to hide behind a text or, or an email or, or a memo or something like that. And what I saw in Good Cultures is, is a willingness to have that moment where you're saying, look, you know, this is a hard conversation to have, but we're going to have it. Actually, at Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg asks her people, have you had a difficult conversation today? Which is really a pretty cool question. And that ends up being a nice way to have vulnerability. And another way that gets get sent is through something called the two line email. And this is an idea that comes from Laszlo Bach, who was former head of people analytics at Google, now works for a startup called Humu. But Laszlo says, send an email to all your people, make a habit of it saying, hey, tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you want me to stop doing. It's, it's a really short email, but it sends an extraordinary signal of connection and vulnerability and learning, willingness to learn. Tell me, I wanna get better and and another sort of way to 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 think about it is when you're talking about vulnerability and having real conversations is to aim for warm candor and avoid brutal honesty like you know when you talk about okay we're going to have real conversations tell each other the truth there's a certain kind of person in some organizations who gets real excited about that and like all right we're going to be brutally honest together and When you are brutally honest, you enforce a culture of brutality. What you should aim for instead is warm candor, which is when you send a signal of connection. And I'm 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 giving you this because I care about you, I'm interested in your development, and also candor. I'm telling you the truth. So aim for warm candor and avoid kind of brutal honesty.
0: I want to dig into that a little bit more because I mean, being somebody who who has read up on things like Principles by Ray Dalio and, and gone super deep into a lot of these kind of rabbit holes. I think I may personally have sort of a tendency to lean more towards kind of the brutal honesty side of things. Yeah. How do you think about, you know, really sort of switching that or sort of cultivating warm candor instead of brutal honesty?
2: Use the camera, like deliver one signal, deliver the uh, candor signal, but also pull the camera back to show the connections. And one great example of that I saw. I studied uh, Danny Meyer's restaurants. Danny Meyer runs some of the top restaurants in the world. That was a Gramercy Tavern. And I watched a a woman named Whitney. It was her first day. Um, She trained for six months to be a front of the house waiter. So she'd done all this training. This is her first day at the front of the house. And right before she was about to go out, her manager leaned over and said something to her. I'm wondering, what what did he say? Like, go get him. You can do it. And what he said was, if you don't ask for help 10 times today, it's going to be a bad day. Which is really like a high candor. Like, I winced a little bit when I heard it. Like, that's high candor. Like, you're going to make 10 mistakes today, is basically what he's saying. But he's also saying, look for me. Ask me for help 10 times today. Like, that's a candor. That's a warm message. So he delivered both. He gave her the truth. Like, we expect he made mistakes safe. Like, he put her on her learning edge. It wasn't like, you better not make a mistake today. It wasn't just mindless, good luck today, go get them. It was this in between ground, which is uncomfortable to stand on. But it's like, you're going to make mistakes. And when you do, I'm here to help. We're a team. So it's really pulling that camera back and not just delivering the truth, but showing the interconnection between the people in the room, showing the interconnection between people who are there to support each other when they, when they do fail, makes that failure safe and makes the learning happen.
0: That's a great example. And so if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but am I sort of thinking about this, it's almost like bring, you know, some sort of emotional intelligence into that into that sort of honesty and think about how it's going to impact the other person and and frame it more from perspective of caring about them and also being a resource for them to help them with whatever that particular issue is. Exactly. So I want to come back to the the concept of safety. We kind of touched on it and then re- really went deep down the sort of vulnerability rabbit hole. But I think that's a really important element as well. And, and I know you tell kind of the story of these kindergartners and, and how they sort of defeated CEOs. Can you, can you share that anecdote?
2: Oh, yeah. This is my favorite one. I mean, this guy came up, Peter Skillman, he's this engineer and designer, came up with this contest. And it was a super simple contest, right? Who can build the tallest tower with 20 pieces of raw spaghetti, a yard of tape, and they had 18 minutes and a single standard-sized marshmallow that had to go on top of the tower, right? Ready, set, go. And the interesting thing that he got was some CEOs, some lawyers, some MBAs, and groups of kindergartens, four-person teams. And they all start. And the question is, which one's going to win? And, you know, they all start. And, and the, all the adult groups start the same way. Like they they start, they talk, right? They're all talking. And then they suggest some ideas. And then they hone those ideas. And then they divide up roles. And it's super smooth. Like it looks gorgeous. It looks so cooperative. It looks so polite. It looks so lovely. And then over here, you have the kindergartens. And they're basically just like eating marshmallows. And, and it's complete chaos, Right. They're taping stuff together and it's, it's complete. And if you had to bet your life savings on which one is going to win, most of us would bet on one of the adult groups, right? Because like, that's our mental model of group performance. When we see, it focuses on what we can see, which are individuals. Like when we see smooth, verbal, cooperative teams, we think it's going to be, it's going to work well. And when we see total chaos, we think it's not going to work well. But what ends up happening is the kindergartners win. Like every time, you know, they beat the MBAs, they beat the lawyers, they beat the CEOs. And that's because our mental model of group performance is wrong because it doesn't include safety. You know, we're built to care about status. Deeply wired in us is, is this worry of where we fit in. And that starts churning the second you put any human being in a group. You know, they're, they're talking smoothly, but underneath their talking is this whisper. Where do I fit in? Who's in charge here? Is it okay to say that? And it slows ideation, it slows creativity, it slows performance. Over with the kindergartners, they do not care. They do not care about status. They just are shoulder to shoulder, cramming stuff together, making it happen, building something, it falls down. What better feedback can you get to go back to where we started this conversation than from making a great mistake together? They, they learn from that mistake. They're able to churn out more tries and they get a better result. The adults usually do one try and it usually falls over because they haven't anticipated how complicated this actually is. So it's it really gives you a new way to think about, about group performance because it ain't about how smart you are. It really is not. It's not about how verbal you are, how well you talk. It is about how safe you are. Can you go shoulder to shoulder? Can you just start cramming stuff together and see what happens? That's what a good group does. And when you look deeply at the early days of Google, when you look deeply at the success of the San Antonio Spurs and the Navy SEALs, what you see are people who do not care about status, who are working shoulder to shoulder because they've created this atmosphere of safety where their brains can relax and work together.
0: So how do we start to think about creating that sort of culture or environment of safety with people that we work with?
2: Yeah, the first is to understand how the amygdala works right? The amygdala is at the center of your brain and it's the part that's sort of the fight or flight alarm system. And to understand how that works, you got to understand that it is super vigilant. It is constantly looking for micro signals that you're not safe. And when it does, it checks you out. Like it will start looking for the exit doors. So understanding how important it is to over communicate safety. And that starts the first day ends up being way more important, I think, than people think. The first hour Delivering a really clear signal of, of connection early on that, that previews further future connection, that cares about the whole person. There was a cool experiment at a, at a place called Wipro, which was a call center that had, that captures some of these lessons. They were struggling at Wipro. As a call center, they lost a huge percentage of their people every year. And so they figured, what can we do? And they tried this crazy experiment where they changed training by one hour. And the one hour, the no, two groups, one group got... Uh, the standard training. The other group got this training where instead of telling them about Wip bro, they sort of flipped it and they used the hour to ask questions like, tell me new new hire, what happens on your best day? What happens on your worst day? They asked him, if we were on a desert island and marooned, what skills would you bring to, to our survival? And then they hired them all. And then they went back seven months later and retention went up 270% in that second group. because they received a really clear signal that said, I see you we're we're connected. They over communicated safety and they demonstrated that safety with behavior. And so smart groups use that first day, that first hour to continually signal these very, very basic human connective signals. You know, when you get hired at Pixar, whether you're the barista or a new director, You get brought into a room and the head of Pixar comes out and says the following sentence. He says, whatever you did before, you're a movie maker now. We need you to make our films better. And then they have a meeting called The Daily where they show the footage from the previous day and anybody in the company can speak up and make an improvement or a suggestion, anybody. So a barista can raise their hand and say, I think that color is off. I think those clouds look fake, whatever. So it ain't just the messaging, it's the messaging plus the behavior and the, and the set of organizational habits that reinforce this very, very basic signal like, look, we're connected.
0: So it's, it's and I'm just sort of clarifying this for the listeners, it, it's essentially not sort of a, a physical safety. It's more like you're part of this community. We see you as a human and you're welcome here to sort of express yourself and be yourself and you don't have to worry about your status. Yes, exactly right. So let's move on to kind of the concept of establishing purpose, which I know is sort of the third building block of creating strong cultures. How do you think about sort of what that means and and how organizations can strive to do it?
2: Yeah. So somebody, when I started out on this, on this journey, I sort of thought, well, purpose is something that seems to come from, you know, the organization's hearts and, and, and from their guts. And, you know, it's the, it's the, I didn't expect that they would sort of Talk much about it, like especially the Navy SEALs. I thought they'd be kind of quiet about their purpose. But it turns out when you spend time in those communities, they like over communicate that stuff by a factor of 50. Like the SEALs talk all the time about how they're the quiet professionals, which is kind of funny because like they talk all the time about how quiet they are. And they talk all the time about shoot, move, and communicate. And they talk all the time about how the only easy day was yesterday. And they almost fill their windshield with these mantras. It ends up functioning kind of like a mantra map, where they've distilled what matters into kind of a cohesive set of emotional GPS signals that really show what matters. You know, that really, really show what matters. The best, the best story about purpose that I that I bumped into had to do with the, uh, an event that happened in the '80s, the Tylenol poisonings um, in 1983. Johnson and Johnson, the maker of Tylenol, got a call one day that, hey, uh, your product just killed people in Chicago. Some madman had, had replaced the capsules with poison and it killed innocent people. And what happened next is like Tylenol, just like that school of fish we were talking about before, like swung into action. They they voluntarily pulled millions of dollars worth of product from the shelves. They dealt with total openness with the press against the advice of their lawyers. They, they went against the advice of the FBI to pull even more product from their shelves. They they developed safety packaging in a matter of weeks. I mean, it was absolutely incredible, and as a result, Tylenol's still around. When you sort of roll the clock back on that story, like why were they able to do that? That's amazing. Tylenol shouldn't exist today, and yet it does. Because there was a leader at Johnson and Johnson. a guy named James Burke, who, a few years before, had started to worry that his people kind of lacked a purpose, that there wasn't a clear sense of direction, of true North. And he'd created a series of what he called credo challenges, where people got together and had these intensive discussions around the question of what comes first, like what's any business that like anybody, you could have 10 things come first, right? Shareholder price comes first, quarterly report comes first. You know, in in Tylenol's case, it could have been, uh, you know, their relationships with hospitals or their research and development. But what they decided in those meetings was the patient comes first, the health of the patient comes first. And... They created this tremendous, vivid consensus around what True North was. And as a result of those intensive conversations, when the crisis came, they all knew what True North was. Like, okay, we can should we pull the product? Yes. Should we develop safety packaging? Yes. They didn't have to debate it. They didn't have to hesitate. They could act just like one giant brain. And so that, to me, illuminates how to use purpose in an organization. You got to build a map you got to build a map that shows what true north is and also what true south is, like what you definitely don't want to do, and be as vivid, explicit, and flood the zone with really clear signals. And those signals can take the form of stories, sort of parables. They can take the form of catchphrases. They can take the form of images. They can take the form of people. But to really over-communicate those whatever 10 words matter most, whatever 10 images matter most, flood the zone, flood the windshield with that clear sense of purpose.
0: You also talked about in, in kind of our pre-show conversation, you, you mentioned this idea that many people think that organizations that have a really healthy culture are sort of conflict free. And yet that wasn't necessarily what you uncovered in, in your research.
2: Totally. That's funny. You know, when I I got into this, I thought, oh, I'm going to get to Pixar and the Seals and San Antonio Spurs, and I'm going to find these like magical places that sort of transcend, right? They're just awesome. And I actually didn't find that at all. Like, they have conflicts. These are incredibly successful places. They probably have more conflicts because of the way, because of the honesty with which they confront their core tensions, You know, every organization, there's no such thing as kind of over the rainbow where you'll ever get to a place where tensions will go away. What you can do, though, is face toward them, face toward the real problems that you have. And that's what makes those groups, I think, unique. And it ultimately gives them a strong culture. The idea that continually being aware of those tensions that they face and those problems that they face and never hiding from them, but instead creating honest conversation around them.
0: And I think that comes back to the same theme in many ways we've been talking about throughout this conversation, this idea that owning up to your challenges, sort of facing reality, facing your mistakes is is one of the core components of not only sort of individual performance, but the performance of, of high functioning groups as well.
2: It's so true. You know, it really is. And we have this powerful instinct to hide away from those from those moments, you know, to to, to flinch away from them as organizations and as individuals. And it doesn't mean they don't hurt they still hurt, but kind of leaning into that pain um, and and using it. And it's it's kind of funny because it's only in recent years, like I I would do a metaphor with kind of physical fitness, right? For many years, it was thought it was like unhealthy to run long distances or unhealthy to lift heavy weights, right? Until about the seventies when we discovered, you know, how the aerobic and anaerobic engines work. And it turns out, pain is a kind of a good thing in a way because it, it tells you where the edge is. And, and by experiencing it and pushing your body to the edge, you actually get stronger. And I think what a lot of the science that we have now shows us that cultures and groups are built exactly the same way. By conf- by experiencing that vulnerability and risk and pain together, that is what makes groups stronger too. So you know, leaning into that moment, as painful as it is, ends up being the, the, the place where growth happens.
0: So for listeners who want to concretely start sort of implementing some of these ideas into their lives, what would be kind of one piece of homework that you would give them as kind of an action item to begin implementing some of these ideas?
2: Yeah, I think, I think the main action item I, I've heard it described, you know, would be WSD, which stands for write shit down. I think in our lives, we often have a lot of experiences and we presume that learning is going to take place. But actually having a place and a time every day where you can get away from things and reflect on what happened today, whether that's with your individual skills or with your group, to actually have a, a cool, calm place where you can really reflect and see and start tracing threads and start connecting dots and start setting goals and start reflecting on your performance and figuring out wh- where you want to go and how you're going to get there. To me, that that's the most powerful thing. I haven't met any really high performers that didn't have some way of capturing experience, you know, some way of really, you know, WSD and and giving you an opportunity to later on reflect and and see and learn. And that's what it's all about.
0: And for listeners who want to find you, your work, etc., uh, et cetera, online, what's the best place to do that?
2: DanielCoyle.com would be a good place to start.
0: Awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom really, really fascinating work and research that you've done and, and some great conclusions from, from all of that
2: research. That's fun spending time with you. Matt, let's do it again sometime. Thank you so much
0: for listening to the Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.